I love how Christmas changes, uh, changes the city, changes the way the city looks, uh, changes the way people act and behave towards one another. Um, with, you know, the lights and the decorations and the music. Josh, I totally agree. You should not play Christmas songs before uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, it is, uh, <laughs> that's just the way it is. It, otherwise, uh, it just, it just, well, whatever. Um, our house has been transformed, so we got the tree up. We, speaking of cold, we went out to a Christmas tree farm. Uh, we were going to have a Norman Rockwell moment, and, um, It was actually pretty warm at our house, but by the time we got to the Christmas tree farm, I was freezing, and I spent most of about two hours just like this, and uh, it was, uh, but we got the tree in the house, the uh, lights are on it, and it is being transformed, our home is being transformed room by room. Um, So, that's the way our culture does Christmas, and I believe in enjoying, or I don't know if I say I believe, but I think it's a good thing to enjoy how our culture uh, recognizes the season. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of re- redemptive aspects to it. And yet, one of the things we want to do through this Advent season is to remind ourselves that our culture and the way we go about Christmas is vastly different drastically different from God's original intent. Which leads us to Isaiah chapter 9 as our text. So uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd like you to have those open. Uh, And we'll be going through this passage that Joe just read. Let me give you a little bit of context to Isaiah chapter 9 because there are these passages. Isaiah is a long book, 66 chapters. Um, and, but there are some portions of Isaiah that we are super familiar with, like Isaiah 9. We've heard these verses many times at Christmases gone by. But there's a context into which it was originally written. Let me just quickly summarize it. Chapter 7 of Isaiah. Uh, in the year 735 B.C., the prophet... Isaiah goes to the king of Judah, whose name was Ahaz. And he goes in order to comfort Ahaz, because Ahaz was in distress about an alliance between their northern brothers, the nation of Israel, right? So at this point, God's people were separated into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Uh, And at this point in history, Israel was against Judah, It wasn't always that way, but they were at this point. And the northern kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with their northern neighbors, Syria, uh, headquartered in Damascus, uh, in order to uh, fight in two directions. Fight against Judah, but also to fight against the growing worldwide threat of the Assyrians. But Ahaz was not into making this alliance. He didn't trust Israel. Um, And so Isaiah is comforting the king, and he says, I want you to know, God is not going to allow their plans to succeed. God will bring them to nothing. Look in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, It shall come 
to nothing. Meaning the alliance between Israel and Syria will come to nothing. In fact, within two years of the prophet saying this, Assyria had attacked and conquered Israel, though they had not deported them. That came several, many years later. So God, through Isaiah, offers Ahaz the opportunity, we're looking at chapter 7 still, the opportunity to ask God for a sign. And that sign was a sign to show that God was going to help Ahaz, but Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign. And so God said he would give it anyways, but then God said that he was going to bring judgment upon Judah for their lack of seeking God's help. That moves us into chapter 8, where Isaiah and his wife, we see the very first uh, section of chapter 8, Isaiah and his wife have a son, and this son's name is the longest name in all of Scripture. Anybody know it by heart? Mayor Shalalashbaz. <laughs> I, um, I just put it M-S-H-B, Mayor Shalalashbaz. And, uh, and they gave him this name because he was going to be a sign to Ahaz. Uh, his name, the, the, the child's name, meant that uh, the spoil is quickly taken away. So it was a sign that Assyria was coming. Assyria was going to destroy Syria. So don't get those two mixed up. There is Assyria and Syria. Assyria was going to destroy Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and take their spoils away quickly. Thus the name Meir Shel Hashbaz. Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, had sinned, listen here, rather than seeking God for help, Ahaz had made an alliance leapfrogging over Israel and Syria. He had made an alliance with Assyria, which would bring much pain in the years to come. That was Ahaz's great sin. And so, this is the context. As chapter 8 is finishing, God calls Isaiah and his children, his disciples, to reaffirm their commitment to the Word of God. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 20. He says, verse 19, I'm sorry. And when they say to you, inquire the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. That's another way of saying to the Word of God. Renew your commitment, Isaiah, and those who will listen to the Word of God. For those who reject the Word of God, God promises that their life would be characterized as with misery. Such misery that they would turn their anger towards human and divine authority increasingly. Because their life was a wreck, they would be angry at others, God, and their human leaders. And the darkness of sin Chapter 8 ends, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust 
into deep, dark, deep, thick darkness. That is what happens when people reject God's Word. And it is into this dread and into this gloom caused by willful sin that God promises a restored future. Where there has been distress and darkness, God gives the promise of a great light. Where there has been gloom and anguish, there is the promise of increased joy. Increased joy like that after a harvest, right? Those who've worked hard to till the land and to plant the seed and hope that the rains would come and then when the harvest comes, there's enough food for not only to feed the family, but for next year's crop and the joy that would be there. That's what will replace the gloom and anguish. Where there was an oppressor who had ruled with a yoke and a rod, God has broken, promises to break that oppression. And every reminder of war, whether it's the boots or the clothes stained with the blood of battles, these will be replaced by the instruments of comfort and productivity. They will be replaced by fuel for the fire. And all of this restored future, Isaiah says, is found centered on the entrance of a person when he says, for to us a child is born. For. For. All these things are going to happen. For. Because to us a child is born. To us a son is given. You see, Isaiah's prophecy isn't the first. It's not coming out of nowhere. It was made in 735 B.C. Yeah, almost seven and a half centuries before its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. But it's not the first. It actually comes in a long line of promises. Biblical promises that God has made about one who would come to give hope. And that's what this week of Advent's about. It's about hope. And these promises are one about one who would undo all that sin has destroyed. And all the human selfishness has brought decay. Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of God of the Messiah, says that there will be one born of a woman who would crush Satan's head. Genesis 12.3 says that, one, that there would be one of Abraham's descendants through whom the world would be blessed. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that one of Judah's descendants would rule forever over an obedient people. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19 says that there is one who is like Moses who would be raised up to lead the people. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of David's descendants would rule over an eternal kingdom. And Psalm 110 says that there is one who is even greater than David. Who would destroy God's enemies, making them his footstool? In the Old Testament, there are many more prophecies that would come later than this one in Isaiah chapter 9 of the one who would come. 
But more than prophecies, the Old Testament is filled with types, countless types, of one who would come to fulfill all the promises of God. For thousands of years, God has been working one plan that would consummate in the arrival of a child, a son, his Messiah. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, as an aside, and it's interesting because I literally, during the welcome and greeting, just had a conversation that brought this up. But as an aside, sometimes as people study the Scriptures, they wonder about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And part of that wonder is, like, how does the nation of Israel relate to the coming of Jesus? Maybe you've had that question. Like, did Jesus come to do what Israel failed to do? Was God's original plan frustrated? And so He had to come up with a new plan, which was He Himself. Sometimes it's communicated that way. Like, you know, Israel didn't do what God wanted them to do, so now we got to go with Jesus. Well, let me say this. God's plan to redeem the world, to redeem you and I, was not an afterthought. God's, Jesus' coming to rule over this world was not plan B or C. Where Adam had failed, now we've got to go with Israel. Maybe they can do it. And where Israel failed, now we've got to go with Jesus. Plan C. That's not the way it works. Jesus was always God's plan. Now, I mentioned downstairs in the kids' room. I hope you'll go by and take a look because we have these posters along the wall. They go from the hallway into the room, around the room, and then back out into the hallway. And so I was walking Savannah, my five-year-old, through it this week, and I was showing her these pictures, and I was kind of walking her from creation and taking her through Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and then... Now we're into, you know, uh, all these different Old Testament stories. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're, now we're in her Sunday school room and we're looking at uh, the birth of Jesus. And then we start, and she goes, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, Dad. She goes, how did Jesus make all these other people if he wasn't even a baby yet? How did he do that? I love the wisdom of a five-year-old. That's a great question. God's plan, I, you know, then I got kind of wrapped around an axle trying to explain the pre-incarnate state of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hypostatic union, it didn't work real well, but I essentially just said, Jesus has always existed. And it's always been God's plan for Jesus to come and redeem all that sin messed up. So here we are in Isaiah chapter 9. Who here can hear these words, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the tune... (laughs) Can anyone, does anyone not know what I'm talking about? (laughs) In Handel's Messiah... 
He wrote a song about these words. And Patrick, certainly you've heard this. For unto us the... I won't, I won't butcher it. But since the year 1741, when George Frederick Handel wrote The Messiah, this song has been a classic for Christmas. It's one of the greatest masterpieces of all time. Would you agree with me, Paul Reese? Amen. amen. I knew it. I get that Presbyterian to say amen. <laughs> Talk about classical music right there. It's not just a, a, a masterpiece because of all of the beautiful voices and the men and women's part, but the strings and the horns and the drums, all of it put together is such a... It, it's, it's almost breathtaking the way it comes out if it's done well. But as great as this song is, as great as that song is, Donnie, it does not capture the magnitude of what God's Word is saying with these words in Isaiah 9. So I want us to look at these verses and see four things that we learn about this child. Four things about this child. The first one is this. This child was born to rule. This, this child was born to to rule. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, you know this, but this is not talking about government like we have in Washington, D.C., which, of course, we would love if that was on his shoulders also. The mess that's going on there. It's not, he's not going to just take care of the chaos that is happening between left and right side of the aisle. This means that this child was born to rule over a people. This child was born to rule over nations. This child was born to rule over the universe. The government, the ruling, uh, the, the power to rule was upon his shoulders. Many people recoil at the thought of this. They like the idea of Jesus soft and cuddly in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, meek, mild Jesus. Uh, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. A little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. They like that kind of Jesus. But not the Jesus who rules. Not the Jesus who has authority. Isaiah is telling us that there is a child. He's telling Ahaz, the king, there is a child who's coming and he will rule. He will have ultimate authority. He will have the government. Not a government. The government will be upon his shoulders. Verse 7, it, this idea of his rule continues where he says, And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. The increase of his government. This is a missionary text. This is a missionary rule. His rule, his kingdom is going to increase. 
It's going to increase around the world, Joanne. It's going to go to every people and land, Matt. It's going to go everywhere where Jesus Christ is not honored. This child's rule will touch down. In the hard places today that hate the Gospel, He will rule. Because the increase of His government shall have no end. This message will be carried worldwide. His rule will extend worldwide through His people sharing that message. People like Emelina, who is in northern Thailand. And I want to commend those of you who know Emelina. She left here about two months ago. Uh, I got a text from her earlier today, and she says that she is uh, struggling. And so I want to ask One City Church if you would pray for our sister, 19 years old, who's given seven months of her life to bring the Gospel to orphans in northern Thailand. Because she knows that the increase of his government will never end. Paul Kijiu, bringing the gospel to those who don't know Christ in his, among his people group, the Rangi in Tanzania. Because of the increase of Jesus' government, there will be no end. But it's also true right here in Lancaster. Right here in Willow Valley. Right here in your workplaces, the increase of Jesus' rule over the hearts of people who you know today that don't care a lick about Jesus, one day, some of them will respond to the Gospel that hopefully you will share with gladness and they will come underneath His rule. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 talks about the fulfillment of this missionary text when it says a great there was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe from every nation from every people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb you know we we uh We hear that and we oftentimes are told, go, you need to go, 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 go across the seas. And there are some who need to cross cultures and cross barriers. But we need to go to our co-workers. We need to go to our parents or our siblings that don't know Jesus. We need to go to churchgoers that go to churches that don't believe in the Gospel of grace and tell them that there is salvation belonging to God who is on the throne and to the Lamb, and they need to submit their lives to it. So this Isaiah 9 is a missionary text, but it's also a discipleship text. Of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. So I ask you this question, where in your life today does Jesus not have? Let me ask it a different way. Jesus can do whatever He wants to. Where in your life today are you quenching the Spirit? Saying, don't touch that, God. Don't touch that. I'm not ready to give that over, Lord. Yeah, you've submitted yourself to Jesus. And so, His rule has increased through your life to that extent. But His the increase of His government 
deeper into your heart and in the details of your life wants to go further. His rule is not to grow more people, but it's to grow deep people so that more and more of ourselves are submitted to His Lordship. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4-8. to He said, You having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire, that's talking about when you came to Christ, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's the increase of His government in your life. And He says, make every effort. Make every effort. Don't stop allowing Jesus to have full reign in your life. Don't quench the Spirit when He shows you those areas that you need to grow. Verse 8, it says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. Which makes me wonder, is there any reason, any wonder why Satan didn't want to snuff him out when he was two years old there in Bethlehem. And his parents, in the middle of the night, had to flee to Egypt. And that great wailing came out of Bethlehem because Herod had sent his soldiers to kill all children under the age of two. Satan was behind that because Satan knew that if he could kill that child, the increase of his government might stop. But it wasn't successful. So that was the first thing. This child was born to rule. The second thing I want us to see is that this child's rule shall be good. Look at the adjectives that, re- that go with his name. Verse 6 there in Isaiah chapter 9. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. This child is neither weak nor fickle. For those who know Him, He is the blessing of the highest sort. Do you know Him today? Do you know that He is a wonderful Counselor for you? Do you know that He is your mighty God? That He is your everlasting Father? And He is the Prince of Peace for you. Sometimes in pastoral ministry, I get into counseling situations where I can't come up with a Bible verse. I can't just say, believe this, do this, and it'll work out. Sometimes sin has gotten people's lives all knotted up like a fisherman's line. And I don't know what to counsel them to do. And inevitably when I get in those situations, I'm reminded of this verse. And I say, Jesus is a counselor par excellence. And if you will draw near to Him, I I don't know how, but if you will draw near to Him and obey the whispers of His voice, 
you will find that over time, the chaos of your life and the tangled mess of your life, that when you, took, when you stood back and took it all in, you're like, ah, and you got frozen. But if you will just walk with Jesus, He will untangle that mess. He's done it in my life countless times. And I know for some of you, you're going through that now. He is a wonderful counselor. Draw near to Him. But He's also able to give peace. He's also able to give peace in the midst of terrible situations. You remember a few weeks ago, I asked you to pray for Peter Padra? Peter's been, Peter's been struggling with uh, cancer in the spine for about eight or nine months now, and he's really weak from chemotherapy. But that man's, the peace that that man has exuded has just been incredible. I want to just give a little bit of good news since you all prayed. The week after I mentioned it to us, I called him on the phone. I call him a couple times a week, see how he's doing. And uh, he said, uh, well, I'm in horrible pain, <laughs> but I got some good news. And I said, okay, what's the good news? He said, well, I got a letter. Did I share this with the church? Yes. I did? You did? Oh, well. So Act like you didn't hear it before. Okay. All right. For those who didn't hear, he got a letter in the mail from Penn Medicine that said, uh, we have looked into your financial situation. They don't have any money to be able to pay for their treatment. And we have wiped clean your entire medical bill and you will be able to continue to receive cancer treatments for the next year without payment. Of which he looked it up and he realized, he called them up and said, well, how much did I owe you? And they said $56,000. So gone. This week, I called him. I said, how you doing, brother? He said, well, pain's gone, and they told me the tumors are gone. So, to God be the glory. Amen. And, and we ought to give God thanks for th things like that. However, what's such a witness to me is that he didn't wait he didn't have God's peace once the answer came. He had God's peace in the middle of the chaos. And that's, that's available for all of us because He is the Prince of Peace. And if we will draw near to Him, He will give us that peace. We need to know that His rule over us is like a father loving his children. Some of us, some, I mean, some in the room have had horrible fathers. Um... That's not the way this Father is. He's a, he's a great Father. Jesus loves you in a family kind of way, in the best kind of love. And where sin has caused those who reign and rule over people, whether it's a boss or a politician or whatever, Sin causes people often to use their positions of authority for abuse and force and injustice. 
Jesus' rule is going to be good. It is good. It's one of virtue and blessing. Justice and righteousness. So this child was born to rule. This child's rule is good. Third thing I want us to see from this text is this child's rule lasts forever. Sometimes you and I, if you live long enough, think about the good old days. You think about when your body didn't ache. You think about high school maybe, college. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about, that. those are the best years of my life. What that shows is that we come to expect that things don't last. Good things diminish. We're used to change. Whether that's good or bad, nothing remains the same. But that's not true with this child. That's not true with Jesus. Isaiah says in verse 7 that this child will establish and uphold His kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear that the blessings of His kingdom are going to run out. That we'll, He'll run up the national debt so much that the entire economy is going to collapse. And now all of a sudden we've got to fend for ourselves. That's not going to happen in Jesus' kingdom. He's not going to become a taskmaster ever. He is a good king. In Jesus' kingdom, we do not need to be insecure thinking, this is too good to last. Because it will last from this time forth and forevermore. Ahaz needed to know this, and so do you and I. The last thing I want us to see from this text, not only was this child born to rule, and that his rule is good, and his rule lasts forever, but this child's rule is established firm. How do we know this is all going to happen? How do we know it's going to happen? Is it just wishful thinking? No. The reason we know it, it's going to happen, look at the end of verse 7 of Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You ever known someone who's really zealous? I'm sort of zealous for my college football team. Some people are really zealous for good food. Some people are really zealous for making a lot of money. God is zealous for this, rule, this child to rule in a peaceful, just kingdom forever. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The words, that phrase, Lord of hosts, is used 235 times in the Bible. Lord of hosts. The Hebrew is Adonai Tzavot. Basically, the, the word host, you're like, what's that all about? The word host is the word army. In fact, the, this is a, the plural form of it, but the uh, Zavah is the word for the Israeli defense force. Right now, Zavah in Hebrew. And this is the plural. 
he is the master of the armies. And he's zealous for Jesus' gracious rule. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. I mean, it's as firm as anything. There is no way that this is not going to happen. So why do we not submit our lives to this child? Fully, gladly, completely, unashamedly, reservedly calling other people to enjoy it also. When someone has that much authority and power and is determined to do it, you can bet it's going to happen. And you don't want to be on the offside, on the other team, when he comes to call account. So as we enter into this Advent season, church, we are reminded of God's rescue plan. When the Advent candle was lit, my daughter Amber read Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 16, which says, The righteous branch of David would rise up to rule over his people. And in that day, his rule would be called, The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Eli, you are not your righteousness. Joe, you are not your righteousness. Caleb, Joe, Jill, Bill, Tammy, you are not your righteousness. The Lord is your righteousness. That's the only hope you and I have is that someone with perfect righteousness is our righteousness. Jesus Christ. The child of Isaiah's prophecy. The righteous branch of Jeremiah's prophecy. He established a kingdom not in a manger, not in a classroom, and not in a war room. He established it on a hill called Calvary. Where He took on the sin of the world, bearing it and bearing the wrath of Almighty God for our sin in Himself so that, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you and I might become the righteousness of God in Him. Are you in Him today? Are you in Jesus Christ today? That's what you need to know. You don't want these verses to be about Handel's Messiah. You don't want these verses to be about inspiring, wonderful calligraphy on Christmas cards. You want these verses to propel you to the Lord your righteousness and to be found in Him and to submit your lives fully to His authority and His sovereignty over you. I'm going to ask that the worship team would come to prepare for our final song. Advent is about your now and your eternity. Your now, you, you will, child of God, submit to His government in an ever-increasing way. 
If He lives within you, He will work it out. So don't resist the Spirit's work in your life. Submit to it gladly. And He offers you His counsel and His peace even in the midst of trials. That's your now, but your eternity. Your eternity also. And I ask you, will you bank your eternity on the promises of God's Word? We're about to sing a song called Offering. And the basic message of the song we're about to sing is that God is too great to be bought off. So what we're left to do is just to worship Him. We live our lives as a perpetual thank you to the One, to the child that was given for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Now as we sing this song and close our service, we ask God,